everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another amazing episode of Entrepreneurs Rx. I am today have the pleasure of hanging out with Alyssa Song. I got to know Alyssa because hers was a company that we evaluated and invested in for our venture capital company, Accelerant. Alyssa, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Shufelt, for having me. Hi, everyone. Oh, my God. Please call me John. We're, we're, <laughs> we're way past the Dr. Shufelt stage. Not that it, oh, my gosh. <laughs> not that anybody's ever there. Well, thanks for being on this. So you're, uh, you have a really cool background and a really interesting entrepreneurial background. Give people a little bit of perspective of kind of where this all started, where where you started. Yeah. With Nanodropper, uh, which is my current company, um, it all started when I was applying for medical school. And just out of the blue, I ran across this article in 2017 that was titled, Drug Companies Make Eye Drops Too Big and Do You Pay for the Waste? And um, really, it talked about how eye drops were oversized for the human eye physiology, and patients were paying for those oversized eye drops, not only out of their pocket, but really with their vision when it came to expensive vision-saving medications like those for the treatment of glaucoma. And so my background, actually, it's kind of a a mix of a whole bunch of things, but I actually went to school at the University of Washington in Seattle for uh, biology and psychology and actually did neuroscience research during my undergrad and postgraduate years. And I had been studying the role of the kappa opioid receptor in modulating chronic stress and addiction behaviors. And trying to see the real life application of what I was studying in the lab, I started volunteering with a harm reduction alliance at a needle exchange in Seattle. That really changed my perspective on what it means to problem solve for me. And I think the biggest takeaway from that experience was A, that I love working with people. I really wanted to be at the front lines. And I found that really rewarding, which is what Um, initially motivated me to switch career paths a little bit and apply to medical school in the first place. But second was about how to meet people's needs in a way where it is pragmatic and how it would fit in with people's lives instead of creating a solution that requires the end user to change their behavior or their lifestyle. How do we create solutions where we meet people where they are? So with all of that, when I came across this article, my first thought was, wow, we have all of these great medications that are clinically have been shown to be efficacious and should be working, but the system has let our patients down because of the delivery and the barriers to care that exist. And at first, I I think I felt a lot of anger and that really drove me to try and find an end user solution. And I was thinking kind of like an aftermarket part. And I was asking, how can I create a solution that I could deliver into the hands of the patients and cutting everyone out of the picture if necessary? 
So I don't need to have anyone else on board to be able to solve this problem of oversized eye drops. And that's how we came up with an adapter that reduces volume. Wow. So way back when, when I first when I first met you, one, I was impressed because, you know, you described this problem so articulately. And it was a problem I didn't even know. So I've never used an eye drop in my life. I've never had contacts, worn glasses, and I've never used an eye drop. But I've put eye drops in people, of course, in the emergency department. And you're right, half of it goes down their face. And then when you explain this, you know, I had my, it wasn't an aha moment at all because you gave it to me. But it was like, wow, you're absolutely right. I literally see people with eye drops dripping down their face trying to do this. And that really no idea, you know, my for my frame of reference, it was, well, it's making big, so at least part of it gets in their eye. But what mm-hmm. re- the reality was is, no, it gets in their eye. They're just making a bait to go through the bottle quicker. And I, I hate to think that's, the reason but i might you know i'd like to think nobody just thought through this like you did but i don't know i mean these dry drops are not cheap yeah they're really not and the problem was compounded by the fact that you know these are patients who don't have the best dexterity inherently some a lot of them are losing parts of their vision or partially and so we're asking these patients to have perfect aim with perfect dexterity to be able to use every single one of their drops in their their bottle and so about a quarter of patients will actually run out before insurance will cover the next refill so patients are really having to make a decision even if they do have originally great coverage with their eye drops. Um, They're at the pharmacy counter only two weeks into their prescription, having to make that decision of whether they're going to pay out of pocket for these medications or not. Wow, because half of it's stripped down their face. Exactly. And not only is that wasteful, but it's actually causing patient harm right now. There's tons of clinical data that we have historically that demonstrate how smaller eye drops are just as efficacious and they have reduced incidence rates and severity of both local and systemic side effects. So if you think about beta blockers for glaucoma medications, it's really just getting drained by your tear ducts being absorbed through your nasal mucosa and actually causing systemic side effects. And that's why it's contraindicated for patients with you know, severe asthma or heart failure. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so let's let's go back. When did you realize that you were, I mean, this, so I've done this in the past where I've read an article, read a book and said, you know, have my aha moment. I said, oh, we can fix that. I, mm-hmm. I was kind of, I was older than you are when I had that moment, how how did this all start for you? Were you in an entrepreneurial family? I was not. I come from a family of artists, musicians, um, educators, and in Korea, what we call salarymen, a very stable, um, kind of risk-averse type of upbringing is what I had, especially as an immigrant family. I think that Um, without kind of a safety net of family around you or any kind of uh, family legacy to support you. I think it drives a lot of people to be a little more risk averse. And I'm the first medicine person in my family as well. (laughs) There's like this big book with uh, 28 generations of songs. And we know from that, that they were all scholars and business people not medicine people. So I'm kind of the weird outlier in our family. (laughs) You can go back 28 generations in your family. 
Yeah, yeah, on my dad's side. To what, to what year is that? It's got to be. Oh, my gosh. I don't even know. But I think it goes back to the Song Dynasty. Wow. That's yeah. Totally badass. <laughs> What's not super cool is that they don't include women in there. So it's really? only names of men. Yeah. But I also know from just, you know, my grandparents and stuff like that, that I'm part of the first generation of women uh, songs in my family to actually work and have like a full career. So we can safely assume that there weren't probably women song doctors in my family. Wow. I mean, I just I I've just recently gone back one generation. So uh 28 is pretty uh pretty impressive. Okay. <laughs> you come from a family of I like that salary man and artists and, and professors. So, you know, do your relatives and parents look at you like, you know, what the hell? You're in medical school and now you're doing this too? Like what's wrong with you? Oh my gosh. Yeah, right. So we have like a running joke that I'm like the greatest disappointment for my grandparents <laughs> <laughs> because at first I was like I love research they're like oh but I thought you were pre-med are you not going into medical school and then I drag them along for a couple of years and then finally get into med school and then I don't graduate and start this whole like very what they view as risky a very risky path in my career so that's the running joke but I mean, to answer your question about where did this entrepreneurship come from, I didn't anticipate that this is where my life was going to take me. I didn't take any entrepreneurship classes or any formal education, I would say. But my friend, uh, my best friend, Olga, in my last year of undergrad, thought it would be really cool to take this multidisciplinary class that was at uh, the University of Washington. And it was a class where they brought together um, from undergrad to master's to PhD students from all disciplines, the sciences, engineering, we had physics students, and combined them with the business school students. And the idea was to create teams within the class and solve an environmental problem. Um, I had spent that previous summer with the experimental farm at UW, just learning about um, sustainable farming practices, because my dream at the end of my career is to own a homestead farm and be um, completely off the grid and things like that. So I thought it was a cool opportunity. And all summer, my job was to install drip tape irrigation. And what that entails is carrying around these 50 pound rolls of drip tape, which was like more than half my weight at the time. And you lay them down, you run them down the rows, and you have to stake them down into the ground with these six inch uh, staples. And it was, I mean, backbreaking labor. And it was very uh, time consuming. It took so many of uh, us volunteers to even install it in the first place. And I realized that even though drip tip irrigation is the most water efficient irrigation system available, small scale farmers don't have access to it because there are no tools to install it. The comparison that I learned was uh, drip tape can be up to 95% effective in terms of 
having the water actually reach the roots of the plants instead of being evaporated into the air versus sprinklers, which are about 60% effective at best because you're literally spraying it into the air. And it's harmful for plants since it's getting water on the leaves and uh, other parts of the plants that don't need it. And that gap made up for, I mean, we're talking about billions of gallons per year in just waste of fresh water. And when 86% of fresh water goes to irrigation for crops, just, you know, looking at global numbers, um, there was a huge gap that could be made up if this more water, more efficient irrigation system was available for farmers. So with that idea, I did my first pitch, very shaky pitch to the class. I just hated public speaking like many of my colleagues at the time. And we were the only team to actually complete the checklist and get a high enough score to move on to the competition portion. And so with that, we created my first company, Tape It Easy, and we created very... I would say low tech and easy human powered tool to lay down drip irrigation for small scale farmers. Wow. Do you see the analogy between that and what you're doing now? Because it was like, <laughs> it was like instantly obvious to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think I didn't see it when I was developing NanoDropper, but yeah, I see a lot of analogies. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. Okay. So you do, so you do biology, psychology, neuroscience. Is you said you dragged your parents along for a little bit. You get into medical school and you get, you know, you aim for the top and are in Mayo Medical School right now. So right now you're in the holding pattern waiting to graduate, right? Is that that's, a good way to describe it? That's correct. Yeah. I finished all four years of my medical school curriculum and my uh, school was very gracious in letting me start an academic leave of absence to be able to pursue NanoDropper. They really wanted to cultivate this unique experience and opportunity that I had. And so they're really supportive, which I know isn't always the case, whether it's because of resources of the school or uh, policies. Well, you, you know, in the way you, so one of the things that's always impressing about you is right from the first moment I met you is, and it, it, I was kind of laughing after I met you, like, God, I've been to all the school and, and this young woman is much more articulate than I am because you just walked in, did your pitch and just crushed it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, <laughs> school for? I clearly didn't need it. I just needed to be her. But you did something really smart because I think when last time we talked, it was, you know, I, I was trying to help this kid who'd been out of medical school for a few years try to get a residency slot, and he he's struggling because mm -hmm. they're saying, "Hey, you've been out of medical school a couple of years, like you know your your you know your knowledge base is gone." Mm -hmm. And what you said is, "Well, that's why I'm still in medical school. I didn't graduate on purpose, so nobody could ever say that." That was that was very genius. <laughs> that was my risk mitigation stuff for sure. Yeah, you're too kind. I mean, I didn't come up with this on my own. So I have just benefited from all the mentorship around me into taking taking good steps to be able to focus on NanoDropper, but also to mitigate a lot of the risk that comes with entrepreneurship. Now, I, I could see where, again, once you explained this to me, it was like, I can't believe no one's thought of this yet because 
it was so clear, no pun intended, that after you said, I'm like, well, God, yeah, why? I mean, you're saving what what percentage? How how much longer do bottles last with nano drop around? And I can't remember. Yeah, we make the bottles last three to four times as long. That is unbelievable. It seems like you'd be getting hate mail and death threats from <laughs> pharma, pharma because all of a sudden now you've cut their revenue down by quite a bit, 60%. Yeah, so that was definitely our thought in the beginning. And I think our team just being a little bit maybe naive on the stronghold that pharma has was helpful in us being able to even take this step in the first place. But the more we learned about the landscape, the more we realized that we had really good timing and we had we had a lot of luck in the timing. What had previously been tried to solve this problem of oversized eye drops is ophthalmologists have tried to create brand new packaging systems, basically creating a different eye drop bottle that reduces or even doesn't have to reduce. They would just dispense smaller droplets in the first place. And this wasn't a new idea. Uh, We saw in our patent search that there were at least three other attempts that had been filed for patents. And from that original article, we also knew that Dr. Alan Robin, who is a huge uh, presence in the glaucoma world, He had worked in industry before and had developed his own version of a microvolume delivery uh, device. But these are all complete packaging systems, and that relies on the pharma companies to license it and then put their drugs into that device. And so they didn't gain much traction, and I wonder if that was now when all of these brand name medications now have expired patents and they have generics available, the landscape would be a little bit different for them. But all of that to say, I don't think Nanodropper would have been received kindly by pharma if this was 30 years ago, when all of these brand name medications were still very active and there there wasn't any competition. 30 years later, when there's these generics available and ophthalmologists want to prescribe brand name, and these brand name medications are now at the end of their life cycle, Nanodropper, by reducing the per-dose cost, makes it pragmatic for patients to actually um, buy the brand name instead of the generic. And ophthalmologists prefer that because of the inactive ingredients and there's evidently like a FDA loophole around generics and eye drops that make the batch to batch consistent consistency less reliable. Really? Because of that, yeah. So because of that, even in Canada where you have you know great coverage, we realize that we have a market. Nanodropper has a market in Canada because the ophthalmologists there still like to prescribe brand new medications, which is not covered by the government health system. In addition to that, with this huge shift in our healthcare system right now towards value-based care, I think pharma is now taking a closer look at all of their medications and being like, how do we take the same medications that are developed, not have to go through all the process of discovering a new drug, but take the medication and somehow create better outcomes for patients? And you can do that by changing the delivery of that medication. 
with microvolume delivery, there's this promise of equivalent efficacy with reduced side effects, meaning better tolerability and adherence for patients. And adherence really is the currency when it comes to talking about value-based healthcare. And with an adapter like Nanodropper, we're actually able to both elevate the patient experience, deliver better outcomes with better adherence and better tolerability of the medications, and reduce the cost of that care, really the trifecta in the value equation. So I think because of that, pharma is now really interested in microvolume delivery options and our two competitors in this field both have pharma either have acquired them or have a big licensing deal with them. And so just yeah. so let me try to explain it, then you correct me. I mean, what I saw and you know the demonstrations I've seen is that nanodropper is basically a patented device that screws on top of these eyedrop bottles to lower the volume of the drop that's being received. Is that a good description? Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Okay, so and so you know, again, this seems like it sounds like the person who started down this path said, "We're just going to design a whole new bottle, and if you want, you pharma wants to put your drops in my bottle, you've got to buy the bottle from me." Mm -hmm. Your solutions, which is great, but your solution is much more elegant and much more diverse. I mean, thank cool. you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, and, and it fits on all sorts of different eye drops, correct? That's correct. We are compatible about with about 90% of eye drop bottles that are preservative containing. We call them preservative containing multi-dose bottles. So we're not compatible with preservative free formulations because they have a one-way valve mechanism that we wouldn't want to adapt to. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. What what's kind of been your been your biggest takeaway from this journey? Like what was your biggest, I guess, surprise? Yeah, I think, oh my gosh, I have a few, <laughs> a few big learning moments. I guess for me personally, I was surprised at how much waste there is, not in just medicine, whether that's purposeful or not. I really can't speak for the intentions, but not only is there waste in like the actual delivery of uh, medicine and healthcare, but there's so much waste being created, driving up the costs from the companies themselves, whether they're medical device or some kind of uh, software solution, just the R&D process, the marketing process, the swag, the whining and dining, like all of that to me is waste that is only driving up the cost of care for, at the end of the day, the patients, like someone has to pay for that. And it's not, and it's going to be the taxpayers and the patients. And so I realized that some of this healthcare burden that we're seeing is artificially, artificially inflated. Yeah, totally. You know, it's funny, and it's your era is so much different than my era, which was so much different than the era before me. So the era, so I, I kind of missed this one because of the discipline I'm in, but also it was kind of going away when I got into it was, you know, I'd hear stories and it's just exactly what you said is that these, you know, these huge dinners and ski trips and this and that where drug companies would pay physicians or device companies or 
orthopedic companies would pay physicians to go or sponsor physicians go on these events and there'd be an educational component to it but it was really for fun and (laughs) to get them to use their product and again i missed all that but i mean it sounded like just like you said it was way over the top and it's i think it's come down a lot but it's obviously still still goes on yeah especially if you look at these conferences Yes, I agree that a lot of the whining and dining of physicians has gone away, but the same doesn't apply for the other staff members in the clinic. For example, if you look at private practices, to get in the door, you have to whine and dine the managers and maybe the lead techs. And at these conferences, these booths are literally multi-million dollar productions. We looked at the, the cost that was reported by the American Academy of Ophthalmology for their annual meeting. And they're literally in the millions of how much these device and drug companies have spent building their booths on sponsorships. And we all pay for that. Yeah, totally. Were you surprised at how difficult the entrepreneurial journey was? Like compared to compared to medical school. So I always will tell people, <laughs> like, you know, I thought medical school was quite difficult. It was a lot of fun. I had a great time, but it was difficult. Like of all the education I've done, medical school is the hardest. So lawyers out there, sorry, but it, it was. Part of the entrepreneur your entrepreneurial journey, where do you think it stacks up? Oh man, I agree. Medical school is not easy, but I think there was a much clearer border of Okay, so this is how much knowledge is out there. And if you know this percentage of it, or at least all the red flags, you feel safer. You know where your safety margins are. You know your own confidence level. There's guardrails in medical school. Exactly. The guardrails aren't there for entrepreneurship. And I I found that to be the hardest part of taking this leap in making decisions just even everyday decisions with the company based on incomplete data is the best way I can put it. Um, There aren't that many people who have done exactly what you have done before, if there are any. And so there's a limitation to how many advisors and mentors you can ask because they haven't done exactly what you have done. Unlike in med school, I can ask my seniors, I can ask my, you know, attending or consultant, or I can look it up on up to date. There's so many resources where there are examples of exactly what I am seeing. And there just wasn't that in entrepreneurship. And I think that part is still the hardest part for me making decisions on incomplete data. Yeah, it's funny. Um, Well, first off, you don't seem like a, a guardrail girl. I'm sure your parents would not describe you as one who needs guardrails, but you're exactly right. So for me, emergency medicine was, you know, making quick decisions with incomplete information with this 90% confidence interval Mm -hmm. that you have to be okay with. And a lot of physicians and people in general are not okay in the 90% confidence interval. They're like, you know, it's got to be 90, 95 plus. That, that That was never me. But I do think your analogy is good in as much as, I mean, entrepreneurship is very challenging. And I think it's medical school challenging. But one of the most challenging things is there's no playbook because like like what you said is a lot of times you're doing things that, yeah, we've there's been people you can ask about, hey, I'm running into this barrier or this challenge. Give me your advice. Maybe you've done it before, but no one's done what you're doing. And so you're in, you know, you're in 
uncharted water in many respects. Exactly. Especially when it comes to the other players in this industry and as the trends come and go, just like being on top of all of that. And it feels weird being, I guess, our team holds almost all of the knowledge that's out there about microvolume delivery. And I guess I'm just not used to that because, you know, in in my research years for when I was studying the kappa opioid receptor, there just seems like there was so much more to read about. There was an endless amount of literature out there, but we have, our team has read basically every single paper that there is in existence about microvolume delivery, comprehensively all the companies that are working on it, all the prior attempts. And we're, I feel like we're really at the upper end of having this comprehensive knowledge about this very niche field. And uh, it's such a different experience than med school or my research years, for sure. Right. Is there any other applications to what you're doing? You know, instantly, you think of eardrops. And again, I don't think I've ever used an eardrop on myself. But it seems to me that when I put eardrops in patients, again, most of it runs down the side of their face. Yeah. Same, same issue or different? So we looked into ENT applications and there isn't clear research like there has been done um, like the ocular surface in terms of the volume or the physiology that would say, okay, this is the minimum uh, volume that's necessary to have therapeutic effects. So because there wasn't very clear cut research, it's still a big question mark, but a very clear application is in veterinary care and also dentistry. So everything from bonding agents to etching agents and things that they use to fill your teeth with or cosmetic procedures on your teeth, they all come in squeezable like eyedrop looking bottles. And um, they have a lot of waste in them. And although the patient doesn't necessarily see the price, it's a big overhead cost for the clinic and the dentist. And so there's quite a bit of waste in that area. And what's great is it doesn't even have to be sterile. Those drops aren't a sterile drop. So we're looking into making a dental application version of the nano dropper. Um, I think there's a lot of applications that will be found in just like research and industry um, in terms of anything that you would use like a multi-petter for where you don't need exactly the accuracy, I should say precise, but not necessarily as accurate. That's below, you know, 35 microliters, but let's say above five microliters, that would be like a really good sweet spot for application like NanoDropper, where, you know, the reagent that comes in a bottle, you can just put on a NanoDropper and we would have various sizes. Wow, it's amazing. Well, any any parting thoughts to people who are out there saying that woman is really cool. I want to be her. <laughs> Let's see. I would I'm just a huge proponent of physician-led entrepreneurship. I think really the the state of the current healthcare system that we have in the US could really be changed for the better to be aligned with patient outcomes with good patient care. 
and evidence-based medicine if we had physicians leading every single sector of it, from medical devices to policy to insurances. I really think that even though we don't learn about it in med school, I feel like we have a lot of the tools needed and the training needed to be successful in these fields. And I think at the end of the day, like that alignment is what is going to drive down costs and bring up value. Totally agree. I mean, and you're going to a, you know, physician-led, how you're in a physician-led health system. I mean, Mayo's an incredibly notable physician-led system with outcomes that speak for themselves. And, and, you know, I never had the fortune of going to Mayo. I never would have gotten into it. But but they're doing something right. And the studies are very clear that the hospital systems led by physicians, their their scores are much better, outcomes are better. And I'm as you probably guessed, the big proponent of uh, we, we've got to save ourselves and the and the patients because clearly exactly. we're on a path, a non-physician-led path that's that's driving healthcare costs up. And absolutely I, I completely agree with you. So thank you for being part of that. That's, again, very badass for someone still in medical school. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. This has been another really fun for me anyway. Entrepreneurs Rx will be back to you soon. Thank you all. Be safe. Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur Rx. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeldmd.com. Thanks for listening.